Listo. All right, well, let's get started. Judge Ricardo Samaniego, welcome to the podcast. Thank, thank you, you so much I, once again for your time. No, thank you for inviting me. No, of course, just like I said, the, the thing that I value the most is time. And I know you're extremely busy, same as everybody else, but you just gave me a couple of, of minutes of your time so we can talk about very important issues. Um, I Again, I appreciate your time, Senor. No, no, thank you for the opportunity. Of course. All right, Senor, well, let's get started. For those that maybe are not familiar with who Judge Samaniego is, please tell us a little bit about you, who you are, and what is it that you do, please? Well, I'm the El Paso County Judge, which is sometimes a little confusing for people. Uh, you know, I'm at what actually what I am is the Chief Executive Officer for the county, which includes the, you know, governance of the, of the jail, the governance of the Sheriff's Department, Public Works, uh, the Children's Hospital, UMC, and uh, so uh, anything having to do with the county. And it spreads pretty, you know, from one end, from Vinton all the way to, to Tornillo. And uh, very proud, very proud of the fact that, uh, that I'm able to address anything from Vinton and anything in between. And as you know, about maybe 70% of, uh, of, our, uh, of our residents are in the city. Uh, but the city's in the county, and so therefore uh, we, we've, we, there's a lot of overlapping uh, between the city and the county, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the relationship uh, that I have with uh, the mayor and the city, and, and some of these things are really important. Collaboration has been one of the most important things that we've demonstrated to, to the rest of the, the country. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's how we do things here in El Paso. We're definitely going to talk about that because to be quite honest <coughs> with you, I was one of those that I was confused that I just uh, heard of county judge. This is the order that he gave. And I'm like, wait a second, who is this person, <laughs> right? And what is it that he does? So definitely we're going to talk about that. Absolutely. So uh, I'm glad you, you brought that up. But um, I'm curious, why do you think there is that gap in knowledge as far as what a county judge does? as a community. I know that if you're in government, if you work for the city, chances are you know exactly what every department does. But how about the regular people, myself included, why is it that you think that we are not aware of those specific roles that we should know about? Well, typically in, in most of the communities throughout the country, you have a mayor and the mayor is always sort of the face to the city. And so you hear a lot about the mayor, whether it's Miami or in Los Angeles or anywhere you're gonna hear about the mayor. And since the, the county, you know, you're doing it like I, I have people report directly to me. Uh, we work really close with all the department heads. And so it's really different the, the, the way things happen between the city and the county. The mayor, for example, he doesn't vote unless there's a tie. In my case, you know, I vote in every action that's take, that takes place uh, in commissioner's court. And uh, so I think, and, and also the, um, the pandemic allowed me to step up. And most people didn't know about a county judge uh, but because I was very involved, especially, you know, uh, I started uh, the first, uh, the very first second month, uh, we had the, the killing of a police officer, Pete Herrera, and uh, that was really hard for the, the entire department, for the sheriffs, and I have a tremendous rem uh, respect for the sheriffs. So some of you might know that Leo Samaniego, who was a sheriff for almost 26 years, uh, was my cousin, and I always say we have the same great-grandfather so that people understand the relationship. So right off the bat, I've got uh, the, the, you know, the, the murder, brutal murder of a sheriff. Uh, next thing I know, I go into a, uh, we go into the 180,000 or more uh, refugees that came through our community and had to deal with that. That had never happened. Uh, then August comes the r along, August 3rd, and we have this horrible tragedy and, um, and very difficult situation. And then, of course, we have the pandemic 
And then we have the situations within the pandemic of the first attesting, uh, then we have the vaccination, and then we have the variations of it. And so here I am in about two years and seven months, uh, and it's probably more than most county judges. Each one of those was probably more than most county judges ever faced. So having the kind of exposure that other county judges have not had, uh, this allowed people to understand my role a little bit better. And of course, when there's an emergency declaration, I become the lead uh, elected official and um, the determination is made, what I, determinations that I make are upheld. Uh, the mayor could make a, a mandate, uh, but it'll, it'll be, it could be superseded uh, by my actions. And so all of a sudden people begin to realize that, uh, you know, the county judge's role is, is really important. Uh, it's, and we have our lanes. One, one of the lanes that, um, that we have is accessibility. Uh, one of the things that I fight really hard for is accessibility to everything whether it's transportation, whether it's a communication, uh, whether it's healthcare, uh, whether it's going to the parks, uh, any type of uh, accessibility. And, and I'm very focused on making sure that if you live, I don't care where you live, you shouldn't have, be different. Uh, just because you happen to live somewhere in Tornillo, you shouldn't have a quality of life that's any different than if you live on the west side. And so the county, I believe that one of the lanes that we have is to make sure that there's accessibility of everything that's offered. The quality of life should be equal to everyone uh, that lives in our community. And even the information this weekend, to be quite honest with you, I watched many hours of the Commissioner's Court, which is available on YouTube. When I first found this for the first time, I was surprised But the videos being, I mean, it's the entire sessions that you guys record. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, who watches the six hours? And I'm sure there's a lot of people that do. But then I encourage other people to also do it. Again, I, I wouldn't do it at six hours every day, to be quite honest with you. But then even that, again, I did it Saturday and Sunday, like what I watch, I was like, wait a second, this is important. I didn't even know this was going on, right? But again, it goes back to, we will be involved in the community when we want to be involved, right? Exactly. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm really, we talked a little bit about this, but I'm really big on, on empathy. I'm, I'm big on voicing your concern. Go ahead and throw in your head, your opinion, whatever you want to do. But once you're informed all around, right? Because a lot of times we see, we'll talk about some of the decisions that you have made. We only see that and automatically we tend to feel negative, uh, throw in hate. I mean, we tend to always go into the negative side opposed to, hey, wait a second, let's let's go back. What are the facts? And then, okay, now that I know everything available, here's my informed opinion, right? And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you about that. Because I, again, and, and, and again, as, as a small business owner that I am, some of your decisions, I'll be quite honest with you, I was like, that we'll talk about the two-week shutdown that I'm like, oh, this is affecting me. But I'll be 100% honest with you, but I never question your intent. Meaning that, you know, it comes from a good, from a good place. I, I'm sure that this role is extremely uh, difficult. Any decision that you make, you have people either against you or, or for you. But regardless, if maybe you're gonna throw money away, there will be people that, why is he throwing his own money away, right? Mm -hmm. Without understanding, right? So we'll definitely talk about that. But I want to know a little bit more about you. You graduated from Jefferson High School, family of nine siblings. If, uh, talk to us a little bit about growing up and what made you want to become a county judge. Yeah, 
I, I always had an inclination to, you know, even though uh, my, I had a rough start in school and, you know, lived in neighborhoods that are a little, you know, a little difficult and, uh, but, but always found myself, uh, you know, trying to understand uh, the, the people that were around me. And I think my first exposure of knowing that I was a collaborator is that I worked at Washington Swimming Pool and I was a lifeguard. And I think every gang was there. <laughs> eh, los del Segundo, eh, los de San Juan, los del Diablo, los del Sherman, todos estaban allí. And so I, I, I found myself being able to, to work with them and, and, and things would, would not go crazy when I was there. And when I was not there, things would happen. I mean, that, you know, there was a fight and this guy got stabbed and this guy. And so I found myself having that ability <clears throat> and somehow I ended up... Uh, uh, my first real opportunity, uh, which doesn't happen quite often, but I was only like around uh, 19, 20 years old, and there was an opening. The uh, San Juan Recreation Center was really a tough neighborhood, a really, really tough neighborhood. Is that by the Segundo Barrio, just to no, get no, some context? Uh, right on Gateway, point? off of Gateway. Uh, it would be more uh, off like east uh, east of Jefferson, Okay. all that area, San Juan. Uh, very, very popular, uh, on the Sta Fortis, that area kind of. So that, that was a really uh, difficult uh, place to be, and they had lost the, the two of the directors. So they had been, uh, you know, either jumped on or beat up on. And I thought, well, look, you know, I played football. I was a wrestler. I was a swimmer. I think I could handle this. And they decided to give me one opportunity to, to be the director of the San Juan uh, Recreation Center at such an early age. <clears throat> and, and, of course, you know, once again, I had to figure ways how to be able to work uh, with the different groups and uh, I remember one of the it was slap in the face and it was one of the best comments I ever received uh, one of the uh, commissioners walked in <clears throat> and he said he had never ever seen such a mess uh, the, the, it was packed uh, there was guys with uh, they were doing the, the sniffing of the of the paint was really popular and he walks in he says what the heck this is the worst I've ever seen it and and I felt and I said you know I remember Bero Teran. I said, Mr. Bero Teran, you know where these people used to be? In the alleys, all over the place, doing drugs all over the place. Now I've got them inside here. And now you can see them. They're not hiding from me. And I said, so if you want them to be out there and have these basketball leagues, I'm not your guy. And he was very impressive at such a young age. How old were you again? I was about 20 years old. And uh, some of them, the kids were older than I was because they were, you know, still living with their parents and so forth. And uh, so from there, you know, I, I sort of felt very good about, you know, working with, with the kids. And what happens? They ended up in jail, right? So I decided to be a probation officer. So my first, uh, second job was really a, as a juvenile probation officer. Uh, very successful at, at trying to deal with kids. I found a lot of different ways uh, to work with them. <clears throat> I never had them in my office. I'd be shooting basket with them, talking to them. And uh, then I realized that there's mental health issues. And from there, I decided, you know what? Uh, I want to get into mental health and, and decided to go into mental health, uh, always matching my, uh, uh, my career with education. So when I was um, in the recreation and the gangs and all that, I had a bachelor's in sociology, which is obviously collective behavior. And then when I decided to go into a little bit more into the legal component, uh, I did a lot of forensics, uh, you know, studying forensics, and then decided to go into mental health. And mental health was uh, very exciting to me uh, because I was able to reach people 
And since yo venía del barrio, and I, and I sensed, uh, I don't, I, you know, I came from there and I was able to, you know, to deal in a situation that I understood them and they understood me. And so that was uh, a big part of my career went into being uh, into mental health. I became, uh, there was only two clinical therapists in all of El Paso. Uh, was a liaison with Big Spring State Hospital. Uh, then eventually I was the uh, liaison. I, I worked in southern New Mexico. Uh, and I was the director of rural mental health services at the time. Uh, y en aquel tiempo se llamaba Chicano Mental Health, which is, they allowed you to say Chicano. And so um, I was uh, chairman of the New Mexico Chicano Mental Health uh, Board and then the, the regular mental health board. And then uh, I was also a li uh, the uh, spokesman uh, for Chicano, uh, Rosalind Carter, that far back. She was a um, mental health uh, person. She really loved all her in initiatives, everything she did for her husband, uh, president at the time, Jimmy Carter, was mental health. And I became the spokesman, and, got, and I got to deal with her quite a bit on that. Uh, it, it got to a point that I didn't feel that I had the impact uh, you know, on a good year, you might see, what, 200 people, 200 clients, 200 patients, and I didn't feel I was having that impact. And um, I, I decided that, you know, what can I do to integrate? And, and I always tell, and I hope when you know, part of this broadcast is that you're doing is to talk a little bit about what happens in careers and, and what makes you better within a career. And one of the things that whenever you integrate your expertise, for example, in my case, I integrated mental health, being a psychologist, and instead of being a psychologist, I integrated that into who I was. And I started working in human resources in La Maquiladora. And um, it was very challenging because there was probably 29 to 30% turnover. So if you had 1,000 employees, you'd lose 300 in one month. And so they needed someone to come in. I, I came into a particular maquiladora, cor Corcom se llamaba, and uh, we brought it down to 2%, just utilizing the ability to talk to people, mental health, uh, reaching out to them, educating, making sure that, that they got the education. Uh, we started having uh, elementary within the maquiladora, and then secundaria, and then finally even college. And uh, we did a, a lot of different things. I had Baile uh, Folgloricos. I took all the talent that they had. Some of these children, and I call them children, they were 15, 16 years old working on Maquiladora, had never been in adolescence in their whole life. It was just backed into work. They didn't know what a high school was. So I created an environment of like a high school environment, the colors, the mascots, everything. And, we just got a tremendous amount of attention because uh, the United States needed product from Mexico and they weren't producing it because of the turnover. And so they wanted to understand why one of them was doing so well while the others were, were, not, were not able to, to provide the, the products that were needed to, to build uh, the products in the United States. So I had a visit from Ted Kennedy, which was one of my, my first exposures of being the whole day with, with Ted Kennedy and he wanted to understand what was it that I, that I did, you know, that was able to do that. And so got into human resources, obviously. And, uh, but then one day they told me, uh, uh, you know, the director of operations, uh, you know, quit. Uh, do you think you could handle this? And I said, yeah. And the reason I could handle that is not because you know the product, but because you work around people. And if you know how to work with people, it doesn't matter what the product is. And so I was able to do that. I was able to move into 
not knowing the product as well as other individuals, but yet we became very successful. At one time, we were the only uh, company that actually produced a product directly to the lines of IBM without an inspection, almost like if it was their product right going right into the IBM products. Uh, so then I started running operations. I had um, actually had a, um, I, I was the general manager for a ready mix business. Same thing. They asked me if I could run it, and I said, Yeah, I think I could do this. And ran a 180 uh, ready mix trucks uh, without any knowledge about concrete and cement. And and next thing you know, I'm running a, a large operation of a ready mix business for Cementos at Chihuahua. And uh, then I continued uh, working with them. Uh, my last uh, situation was actually uh, working as the vice president of uh, organizational development and human resources for Cementos at Chihuahua. Uh, that was a, a great experience that I'm now really utilizing and capitalizing on because we went uh, from about 280 uh, employees to about 2,700. And we probably acquired over 50 different companies. And uh, we built uh, one of the most uh, successful uh, cement plants in Pueblo, Colorado, about a $450 million cement plant in Pueblo, Colorado. So I got to know all the things about, you know, about construction, about business, about doing all of these things. And, and uh, you know, before that, I had owned my own restaurants. I had owned uh, grocery stores, and I had businesses in Juarez. And so this combination and, and leading up to, to, to the answer that you'd like to hear is when I saw uh, Congresswoman, now Congresswoman Escobar, decided she wasn't going to run again, I looked into the job title, and it said, CEO slash county judge. And county judge um, did not appeal to me. I'll be really honest with you. Guys. The po political side didn't appeal to me. Uh, remember one time they asked my dad if uh, he wanted to run for office, and he said, no, you know what, I'd rather get buried when I die. <laughs> so I'd rather wait for that. And I, that stayed in my mind. So I was a little bit leery about the political, but I knew I had done, had been very successful in running large organizations and being vice president, even president of one of the companies, the Cementos at Chihuahua, and I got very encouraged about that. And I can tell you, if, uh, if I look back, uh, my career didn't make sense. Three different master's degrees, uh, two from UTEP, I mean, one from UTEP, one from New Mexico State, and one from Notre Dame, and then my zigzag kind of career didn't make sense to me. But now that I'm a county judge, I look back and, and I can tell you, and I believe a lot in God, and I can tell you it, it was like a plan. My goodness, every time I'm at commissioner's court, it's very rare that something does not come up that I'm not able to understand it from a first, you know, first row kind of situation. I mean, I, if it's education, I've been, a, you know, I've been an instructor at community college, University of Phoenix. If it has to do with construction, I will explain all that situation. It has to do with manufacturing. Uh, if it has to do with mental health, if it has to do. And so uh, I feel extremely comfortable that I represent. So if you, you combine everything that I've done with the passion that I have for El Paso and you combine the two, I, I always feel very proud that if not me, who? And if not now, when? And I always say that to myself. If it's not me, Who's going to do it? And if it's not now, when is that going to happen? And uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that because um, um, the community should be thinking in the same way. We're a community that can catapult a lot of things that other communities will never be able to do. 
uh, we can make things happen for the rest of the country that other communities are not even close to being able to do that. What stops us from doing so? No, we're ready. Uh, we're ready. We just have to have the awareness that our uniqueness is, uh, we, we love our uniqueness, but we don't understand our uniqueness. When we come together, and now we're at about 260,000 refugees that have come through our community, you ask people, have you seen them? Have you ever seen people out in the street? Never. You know what happens in Del Rio? Craziness. They're on the streets, they're doing damage, they're doing, how come not here? Why? Because we have a tremendous relationship. Uh, I meet, I put together, the bishop and I put together a meeting every single Friday for about two and a half years now with every immigration agency talking about anticipating. What are we going to do if this happens? What if this happens? What, wh where are we here? How are we going to work with the NGOs? Wh what's going on with... And we're always one step ahead. And it doesn't matter what it is. We're about one step ahead all the time. Afghanistan situation, uh, we get no information. We don't get any intel. That doesn't stop us. We're already talking to the NGOs. We're already looking for donations. I've sent some... Uh, you know, some uh, information through all the employees at the county and in El Paso. And, and we don't even know what we're going to do, but we're ready. I mean, we know that if something happens, uh, and, you, and we can bring that back up more specifically, but uh, this is a community that knows how to come together, and this is a community that knows how to take a challenge. Uh, we struggle at, at first. Uh, we saw the pandemic. I had first, uh, you know, firsthand experience of how difficult uh, their community sort of first reacts like, nah, I'm not going to do it. And then all of a sudden, when they, they gain your trust, and you, you, we have, uh, there's not, we ha used to have more what we call trusting voices. Uh, they were more prevalent. Trusting voices was very prevalent, especially in the Democratic Party. Somebody would get up and say, you need to get vaccinated, and people would get vaccinated. And somebody said, this is what we should do, and people would do it, and they trusted you. And, and we need to come back to that. And that's one of the things I've been trying to do for a long time. How can we come back to that? Well, we need people to be trusted and then let them see if, it's, if they're worth trusting. But don't untrust them before they show who they really are. Uh, you could see the, the passion that I've portrayed, uh, the things I've had to gone through, walking in through trailers with 90 people, uh, body bags, uh, and I had to go through all of that. And people still doubting as to whether um, um, my heart's in the right place. My goodness. I mean, how? Why do you think that is? Especially you that you study, that you know about sociology, you understand a little bit more than, uh, than, than a common person. What do you think that is? We look at the facts, yet there are people that don't want to get vaccinated, that are very vocal on certain decisions. What do you think that is? Well, part of it is that there's not that many that are against you but that those the small group are more vocal you know if somebody goes to a restaurant and they like it they might tell one person but if they don't like it they'll tell 14 persons 14 people will hear about your bad experience so you've got a smaller group that's out there that says no he's doing this or he should be doing that like if i was a, a perfect human being and, and we're, we're not perfect but you cannot find one fault in a situation and throw everything out, you know, throw the baby with a wash, as they say. And, and something that you said uh, a couple of times you said it is that, you know, don't question someone's motive. Question maybe what he does or what he says, but his motives, we'll never know people's motives. 
And, and that motive is like here, you asking me, what is, why do I do what I do? But before that, nobody's hurt me. Before that, nobody's asked me, you know, well, how do you feel about El Paso? Why do you think you have the passion? And I can talk about the legacy of, you know, having great-grandfathers that were governors of Chihuahua, two of them, and then my dad not being able to go to school because when they crossed over in 1911 and having someone like Leo, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of um, passion within the Samaniego of, of wanting to do good in our community. Uh, you know, and, and you have it and you, and you want to do something with it. And, um, but if somebody questions your motive as to why you're doing it, then it's really difficult to defend yourself on, on why you're doing it or if you're doing it for political reasons or to gain uh, notoriety or to, to be known. And uh, so it's not easy. How have you dealt with that? Um, again, you're still very vocal. You're still, we'll, we'll talk about the most recent update and the most recent things that you have done. But again, going back to the decisions early back, uh, well, looking back at next year, how have you dealt with that when people question your intent or when people question, again, why you're doing, well, whenever you take any decision? How have you dealt with that? That must be extremely hard. Well, it, it isn't because people really, I get the people that tell me, you're really stressed, right? And I go, no, <laughs> I, I've tried that and it doesn't work. And, and people get a little frustrated because I remain calm. I keep going in the right direction. Uh, I never try to look at Facebook or figure out who, you know, who, who said what. And that gives me a sense of sanity. But one of the things is that you have to look at yourself in the mirror and you know you're making the right decision. And when you make the right decision, it doesn't matter what people say because there's no one uh, even close that's out there that knows what I'm going through. And the only way, for example, if you really want to understand who I am, you would have to really understand everything that I'm doing. And no one knows that. No one knows that, you know, the long 18 hours a day that I work, that I work Saturdays and Sundays. Nobody knows that I get calls at night or that I'm worried about why La Maquiladora is not getting, uh, they're not getting vaccinated and, and then you, you do everything possible to make it happen. And uh, Or your love when you see Los Tarumadas inside of a, of a bus and they're getting vaccinated and you're all really excited like you said I mean I get excited about things maybe someone else not, might not get excited about or, or having to make a decision between saving the you know the fall of the, of the health care system and closing businesses and, and, and I'll put anybody up to it you walk with me down the trailers look at the tags because I always looked at the tags because that would remind me that there were human beings in those body bags and then tell me when, when, when you're hearing that, that we have less nurses every single time, that they don't want to be in that profession anymore because the community uh, mistreated them, they were not appreciative of them, that while they were going crazy and working long hours and not being able to go home because they didn't know they had COVID or sleeping in different rooms, and somebody puts that on the same balance as a business might, might close. And I'm having to look at the downfall of, of, of a healthcare system or have to look at that it was taking two hours to somebody to pick up a body of a loved one at your house and now they have that body for 10 hours and somebody calls me and says what do I do you know my brother my sister they've been here for eight nine hours nobody's picked them up or when I hear that the funeral homes had them on the floor because they didn't know what to do with them and we had to create a, a, a fatalities management 
plays to get them away from there so that we could dignify them. And so somebody telling me about whether a business should open or not open, which one would you do? You always go to the one that's the most destructive and the one that's not reversible. I can, I can reverse uh, a business and it can pick up again. I cannot, and I cannot do anything about, and I always tell, I said, the first, the, the most um, heartbreaking situation was on the second floor at the medical examiner's office was where families gathered and you could hear the loud crying because they had their, their relatives in one of those trailers, one of the four or five trailers that were down there. And to hear them cry, it'll never, like, like we always say, you cannot unsee or unhear something. And they'll always be in my mind. So when, when I'm dealing with, with fighting for the community, you think, I'll, I'll never forget, I never want our community to ever, ever go through that experience. And most of it, no one knew. There's very, a lot of people have no clue. They've heard about death when we've lost 2,700, and I don't know how they feel it happened, or, but it happened in a very short period of time. And people, and, and I always give this uh, expression or this story. Your dad tells you he wants to be buried at a cemetery, at such and such a cemetery. He wants the mariachis. He wants this. He wants that. And you honor it. But he dies during COVID. And the best thing you could do is, is make sure that, that that body is taken somewhere and, and you know, that, that something happens quickly because you don't want more, more time. And, and that's really sad, you know, that, that you change the plans of someone who's going to die that wanted something. And in our Hispanic community, that's a really difficult thing that you're going to get cremated when you don't want to get cremated or you told your son or that you didn't want to be cremated, that you wanted to be buried. And you decide you have to cremate before something gets worse. Uh, or, or, you know, a trailer shutting down and there's no refrigeration and you have to move all the bodies from one trailer to another trailer. Those kinds of things, nobody's experiencing them. And like I've always said, it's the trajectory that I see that most elected officials can see if they want to, that the community can't see. You see what's here, but you don't see where it's going to finish. And so that's, you got to live with that. And, um, and like I said, if I hadn't loved El Paso, I would have just sort of forgotten about it and say, hey, you know, governor wants to do X and the governor wants to do that. I have no, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to interfere with the governor. Yeah, De definitely. As I was prepping, the the one thing that that continued to come to my mind it's the courage that you had. Especially you were newer to the role. We'll, we'll talk about every other event that happened as soon as you took over, but you could have done that. Hey, this is what the government wants. This is what we're doing, and that's it, right? I mean, um, you still have your 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 job eight to five to go to, so you can take that route. But you were very vocal, and a lot of people I don't think they see the courage that requires that. When now that I'm talking to you, as far as the motive, the reason behind that, that everything makes sense. But I also want to be fair. How about the argument on the percentage? Because again, the, the the people that I follow or the ones that are against either mask or the mandate or the shutdown, the biggest argument, at least that I gather is is the percentages that yes uh, we feel bad the people are dying that yes it, it's it's obviously something very unfortunately for everybody but when you compare the one percent 
then it doesn't make sense for everything else that is happening. How about that argument? How well, will you respond to well, that? Let me, 2,750. You want to you wanna add, to, how much do you want to add to that? How many people got affected by every death? How many people? 10, 12, 14, 15, 20? That's the impact. It's not 1%. It's all the people around you. Uh, the people that lost six people in, in their family. And, and it, it, it just was taking off. And, and not only that, how the, I go back to the healthcare workers. I would like to, for someone who would have spent one day walking with the nurses and the look on their face, the crying. They had to put people on the side that had died, that they hadn't been picked up while they were moving people into the next one, knowing that that person was going to die. Uh, it was a horrible situation for the healthcare. And, and to me, all I wanted to do was give them a break. The 14-day period, which everybody has misconstrued, was not a shutdown for people acting like in Europe, like we're going to shut down and let's see when we open. I didn't have to give a, a date. I could have said indefinitely of anything. I never said indefinitely. 14 days, let's try it. And the 14 days was because I knew that when your healthcare system breaks down, your whole society breaks down. If somebody has to stay in your house 24 hours a day because they don't pick up the body like they did in Europe and all that, and remember, we're the worst in the world. And I had to be looking at, at what was the trajectory again. If we don't slow this down, what are we going to do? We're stacking up the funeral homes. We're stacking up. Now, what's the next step? We don't pick up the bodies at, at the houses when they die. And I had to be looking at that. So I had to figure a way how to stop sort of a reset button. And, and one of, it's funny, but one of the most important things that happened by me doing that is that the healthcare workers found, a, found an ambassador, found an ambassador that they didn't have. Everybody, the chambers, the, uh, everybody had uh, the business, right? They have ambassadors, they have the chambers, they have people, they have funding, they had. Who was the ambassador for healthcare? No one. No one was protecting them. And these were people that were having to live in hotels because they didn't want to go home and pass COVID. These were people that were working right next to a person making $150 when they were making $20 an hour. And nobody knew that crisis was going on. And like I tell you, right now, our hospitals are saturated with non-COVID patients because of the delay of treatment. People delayed treatment and they didn't take care of their diabetes, they didn't take care of their heart issues, and now they're saturated. You know what our big challenge is? We now have space, we don't have people to take care of them. Our, our, our turnover is so high right now in the hospitals that, that we're now worried that we might have a, a place, but we don't have people to take care of them. Was that a direct correlation between what happened that people just Quit or is, is that a direct correlation or is there other factors that maybe we're not seeing? The biggest factor was for what I hear, and I work close with the nurses, uh, you know, associations, and, and I talk a lot to them. And I, I've, I recently I visited the hospital, and of course I'm very close to UMC, and I know what's going on there, is that uh, this, I don't want to be in that situation again. We hear that this is going to be a way of life. We're, we might have another strike of a virus of a different variation. And they don't want to be there because of how vulnerable they were with their families, that they put their, their families in, in danger. That was one big one. The second one, do all of this, go through all of this, 
and the lack of appreciation. See, when people were talking about uh, you, you need to open the businesses, the economy is important. Can you can you imagine the thousands and thousands and thousands of healthcare workers that are not getting it because they don't? They're like dealing with all these people, and people are dying, and and they're getting sick. And we we had eighteen hundred healthcare workers from around the country here in our community. Eighteen hundred hmm. at all our hotels and living. You never saw them because they're. Nobody was using our hotels other than healthcare workers and first responders. So when they're going through that and they say, wow, you know, I'm sacrificing, I'm working 18 hours a day, I get home, I'm afraid, I have to take a shower, go into a different room, and the community's worried that businesses might close down. You can imagine the impact it had on them from a psychological standpoint. So when I stand up, and I say, you know, 14 days, and I stand up to the governor, it was very motivational for the healthcare workers. When we had the, the appreciation uh, day, at the, we're going to now have it. I've made it official every time we turn on the Christmas lights at the Scarate. We're going to have a first responders and healthcare worker appreciation night. I cannot tell you. I, can, I wish you were there. I, I said I stood in every single car. It was uh, Mauricio Ibarra, uh, and, and it was, um, uh, I believe, I can't remember who, who was there at the line, but the commissioners were there and myself. And every single car that went by, we thanked and said, thank you for what you do. Uh, they, they got have their, all the lights around their cars. They were on the trucks. They were, I cannot tell you the sense of appreciation that they had, that someone really understood and cared about what was going on. Now, as a community, how many times did you hear anything even close about what you heard about businesses that you heard about the healthcare workers? And if you look at it, the, the devastation was totally different. And as you know, as a business person, most of us will fail three, four, five times before we make it. And so we know how to get up. If you're a true entrepreneur, you know how to get up. You know how to make that business work. You can go get another business, start another business. We also know something was, that was very unfair is they were, they were using all the statistics of businesses as if they all were successful. They said, oh, you know, so many businesses were closed down because of COVID. In any given year, almost 60% of businesses do not survive the first year. And so there was a, a lot of confusion, but you know it was difficult for me being a business owner, being being a, you know owning franchises, having owned restaurants and other businesses that, that both here and in Juarez, um, was difficult for somebody to like you said, to to question, as if I didn't care about businesses. It wasn't there. It was the balance of, darn, I care about businesses. I mean, I was a guy that would go to a restaurant and pull a, a you know a waitress to the side and motivate him because I said, you know, this owner, he he's counting on you, and the quality of service that you give is making him make less money. Your lack of courteousness, your lack of, I mean, if anyone was really involved in business, this was myself. I was an executive coach for business owners. And, and I'm a mentor for a lot of business owners in Juarez and in El Paso. So my passion for businesses is very real, but it got challenged with something that was more dangerous. And that outweighed 
that of outweighed the, the decisions on at the beginning. And then, of course, I started shifting and, uh, you know, I started meeting uh, afterwards with, uh, with several, I think I had maybe three or four Zooms with about 40, 50 businesses. And, and, and we had these kinds of discussions to say, what would you do? What would you do at that moment? Yeah. No. And, and again, I again, just like I've been saying, it, it affected me. Of course, I had to shut down the second one as well. But not once did I question the intent of, you know what, this is what with all the information around, this is the decision. I might agree, maybe not. But the fact is that well, thank you that, that is something that I, I definitely as I was thinking the pandemic, everyone has had a really difficult time. Mm-hmm. But you have also had a very <laughs> difficult and stressful time. So I wanted to definitely ask you on so many things, but I, again, and not because you're here, uh, for the people that know me know that that's separate, I definitely want to appreciate all the time, all the decisions that you had to make. Um, and talking about decisions, do you ever question your decision, especially if maybe the government is saying something else, but then yet you think about, you a little bit, you explain a little bit of, of the reason behind it and all that. But do you ever question some of the decisions you make? It's always hard. There's a, uh, it's called the imposter syndrome, that uh, the more capable you are, the more likely you're going to question. Because if you don't question, there's something wrong with you. Like if I thought everything I did was right, uh, then that was that would be ego. That would be you know just my uh, narcissism focusing. You know, like oh no, I'm right, and and we know. There's been some out there, and you know some of them that are out there that believe that they know everything. I always questioned. It was really hard on me because I wanted to trust. But people don't know that when I started losing trust in the governor was not because he was 700 miles away. I had conversations on the phone with him where I remember one time he was yelling at me, and I said, you know, because being the therapist that I am, and I'm calm, I said, you know, governor, Typically, when someone is yelling at you, it's because the other person said something that got you to yell. I said, I haven't spoken yet. What's the problem here? And he would get really upset with me. And he would, oh, you don't understand. And you got to do this. And you got to listen to me. And I, so I already knew that I was talking to a person that was now willing to be open-minded. I mean, think about it. I've been in corporate America for 25 years. I've met all the top executives. I've met guys that would make Trump look like a nice guy. I've met people that, and I understand human behavior. He never gave me the impression that he was willing to listen. And when he wasn't willing to listen, then why would I continue to talk to him? But every time I talked to him, he tried to convince me to do something the way he wanted it to do. That was, and I said, "That, that might be right, but can I explain some of the things why I'm, and he wouldn't do that. Was this particular situation talking about when the two-week shutdown exactly? Uh, before that. Okay. I had already started having these discussions with him, and I would say, you know, uh, one of the things I always asked him for. So I was very reasonable, and the community always thought I was this guy standing up in front of the train, and I'm going to, it doesn't matter, and I don't care, I'm going to fight you. It wasn't like that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a collaborator. Uh, you know, I, I try to work with people. And so I said, just do me a favor, Governor. Just do one favor. Give me 15 days between every one of your decisions. If we're going to go from 25 to 50%, give me 15 days. That's all I'm asking. I'm not asking you to do anything. We're a border city. It's different. You can justify it with uh, Austin and all them. That You could say, well, I, I'm not going to do it for you because... And so 
That's all I asked, 15 days. If you're going to go from 25 to 50, give me 15 days. If you're going to do X, the masking, uh, whatever, that one I'll do it faster. But anything, or you're, what do you want us to unmask, give me 15 days. That's all I'm asking. I said, because we were like 30 days difference. The first time that someone actually got the virus here, uh, it had already happened, what, three, four weeks before in, in, in the other part of Texas. And then when we had the first death, we were like a month away. So I said, look, we're like 30 days from everything that happens with you. So when you make a decision, you're making a decision based on what happened in Austin. But you have to remember that we're 30 days behind you. And so if you give me 30 days, I think it would be a good political move, and it would help. It would be very good for, for everyone. Never wanted to. He gave me one time, he gave me five days. And, and, and here's where, the, where I begin to understand how irrational he was and why I make the decisions that I make. I asked him for 15 days, he gave me five. And then he didn't admit that I had asked for a buffer. What he said, I'm giving you five because your numbers are really high in the hospital. And it wasn't true. Our numbers were not high at our hospital. We were at about 10%, uh, and he wanted, if we hit 15% uh, capacity of, of COVID, then we would do something. So I started seeing how irrational he was. And, and think about it. I think we should, as a community, feel very good because he's made some very bad decisions. For example, what happened with the energy crisis? He knew about it, and what does he do? He's a reactor, not a proactive person. So me understanding and having worked with a lot of executives and how they think and how they work, I lost all trust. I lost all trust because he was irrational, uh, he didn't listen, and he believed San Antonio, uh, Dallas, and, and uh, Fort Worth area was more important than El Paso. And there's no doubt, that's where he gets his votes. And so from that very point, I, I, I decided, you know, I'm, I'm not capable or I'm not willing to deal with a person who's not willing to listen. And so I'm, I was not going to, to, to start, you know, trying to negotiate. I sent him letters. He never responded. I talked a lot through his uh, chief of staff, uh, Mr. Sines. Uh, I did a lot before the community saw that I put the, the line in the sand. You think his top priority was opening business? Uh, what was was it? Getting votes, making sure that he is uh, again g g getting, like you said, the, the votes from those important cities. Um, again, in your case, you're describing like your your main motive was saving lives, basically. Yep. You think his was different? Yeah, his this party party line. Yeah, he has to align with his party, because if he wants to win as a governor and wants to one day be a president of the United States, he had to align with his party and the Republicans, uh, the radical part of the Republicans, not all, we have some amazing Republicans here that are very level-headed, that are not part of that, that, you know, fanaticism, that, you know, radical kind of. And so um, he was trying to align, and, and it's, it's difficult when you're looking at your community, born and raised here in El Paso, you know, the youngest of nine, coming from, from you know, the kind of political history that I had, you're going to be very protective. and But if somebody's going to give you the right information and is moving in the right direction, I mean, I'd be the first to jump on it. I'd be the first. And, and you saw how uh, with, uh, with the mayor, with Mayor Margo, I tried my best. I mean, they kept saying, wow, this guy gets, they get along, they talk to each other. I tried my best to do that. As soon as he decided that listening to the governor was more important, then I changed my direction with him. 
and and I said to him, you do whatever you can do to make the governor help El Paso, and I'll do what I need to do in, in the way I do things. So you stick to your strategy as long as it's helping to El Paso, and let me stick to my strategy. Even though it was the opposite strategy? Yeah, well, but maybe he could get something I couldn't get. Maybe he could get more people to come from healthcare workers or whatever it was that, that he was able to do. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, and, I, and I told him, I said, I thank you because you never, uh, in one of the discussions I said, I'm going to ask you, just ask you for a favor, Governor. Please, because of our relationship, do not take it out on anything for El Paso. And he said, are you serious? you think I would ever do that? I said, hey, cuentas claras, <laughs> este, amistades largas. <laughs> and he said he wouldn't. And, he, and I never saw one evidence of him doing that because it, it, it doesn't happen like that. It, uh, people think that he's going to get mad at me and it's going to hurt El Paso. There's no way. It takes legislation. It takes all a, a, a lot of different things politically. It'd be a suicide for him because they, they need to do things in a very distasteful way sometimes, but in a very subtle way. And I can tell you, we got the most healthcare workers. We got the testing. Uh, we've gotten the vaccination. Uh, everything we've ever wanted. Uh, so there's never been a, a withdrawal of anything in our community uh, because the governor was upset at us or because he didn't believe in us. Or, and I, I would never push that envelope. I would never push that envelope. Uh, and plus, it, I would have to do something illegal. For example, a lot of people don't realize that they say, pues donde esta Samaniego? Lately, you know, how come he's not getting out there? Because once you make a, once it goes to the appeals court, and there's a decisions on the appeal, I can no longer challenge him because then it would be contempt of court. Now I, I would be doing something illegal. Once it gets to the court and it's appealed and I decide I'm going to do, you know, it's keep doing what I'm doing, one, I end up in jail, I get fined, uh, and it would be extremely messy. So what do we do? I shift it. For example, when he took away the mandate of me being able to have a, a mass mandate in the courthouse, um, my legal team is one of the most amazing teams of, in the country. We shifted and gave that authority to Judge Chu, who is now judicial. So he cannot touch the judicial. So now Judge Chu went and said, no, it's still going to be mandated. And he couldn't do anything about that. What's the current status on that? Because I think we're now talking about the two-week mandate for, for masks in business, right? Uh -huh. in, in all business. What's the most updated version as of August 31st? Well, that uh, you can only mandate in the schools uh -huh. and in the city and, and city uh, departments, I mean, city offices. And in our case, we continue in the county because the Judge Chu, which is an she's an amazing judge, she's the head of the judge uh, Council of Judges, she can mandate. She cannot mandate what every individual judge does. And as every judge can say, you don't have to wear a mask if he wants to. But as long as you're going through the lobby, you have to be. You, you have to wear the mask, and so we kept shifting. The other time I shifted, and when they say I'm not working, I'm always working on this, is that I got Senator Blanco and Gina Perez from the Texas Education uh, Association to back me up to write a letter to Dr. Ocaranza to make sure that the public knew that he was capable of making a mandate because there was some confusion in Austin that public health could not mandate. And it wasn't true, and so that confusion. So I, we wrote the letter, um, 
very brave of Gina and um, Cesar Blanco, a great senator. We all wrote a letter saying, Dr. Ocaranza, you do have the authority. And we used our legal team to get to that point. So you can make that decision. And he made the decision. For some reason, we just were focusing on the schools, and he broadened the mandate to everybody. And so the first thing that uh, happened when it went to Morales, uh, Judge Morales, is that it went to the appeals court, like it, in my case, but they, they split. And because of the split, uh, uh, Judge Palafox was able to now dictate, okay, I'm not going to allow you to mandate a mask anywhere else other than city buildings and the schools. And that's where it stands now, and I've been waiting for Judge uh, Morales to rule on that. Now, when he rules, it's going to take three hours before, uh, you know, uh, the attorney general, uh, you know, just challenges it, goes to the uh, Supreme Court where it's mostly Republicans, and uh, the chances are very high, very, very high that in the next week our children will not need to wear a mask. There is no, there's not going to be a mandate for masks. And, 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 and what bothers me is that, okay, 12 and up, it's a decision of the parents to get vaccinated. But under 12, they have no protection. They have no choice. The only thing they have is to wear a mask. Everybody else, they, they've got that obligation or that decision to make as to whether or not they want to. But under 12, you're asking somebody to be completely unprotected and not allowing the parents to make a decision on that. And, and when people tell me, no, no, wait a minute. The governor says, if you want to wear it, wear it. Now, here comes the psychologist part in me. Peer pressure is probably, and you, all of us remember how difficult peer pressure is. Think about it. Six people are wearing it and two are not. Who's going to win? No, no. And, and look at what you're provoking. And this is the kind of thing that the governor doesn't understand. You're provoking bullying. You're provoking conflict between the parent and the child because you're telling your child, you need to wear a mask, and he goes, Mom, am I going to wear a mask because they make fun of me or whatever happens in there. Look at everything you're doing. You mandate it, and everybody's happy. The ones that want to wear it and are scared or they don't want to be bullied, they're safe. The kids that, uh, that, that, that they want to be tough because they're not wearing a mask, well, I'm sorry, but you got to wear a mask, and they wear a mask. So a mandate was a very clear, rational decision that doesn't bother anybody. Doesn't bother anybody. And I've always, as you probably have seen that I've, I hear say a lot, it's as irrational as saying, you know, our traffic deaths have gone down. Let's stop wearing our seatbelts. When that, in fact, that's what got us to have less deaths. Same thing with masks. We know they work. Uh, one of the statistics that's very powerful for me is that before the pandemic, we had 890 individuals with um, with a flu, severe flu, to be in the hospital, and our and our hospitals were almost saturated. We never heard about that. Every single year, El Paso gets to a saturation point of non-COVID flu. flu. Well, not regular, but the, okay. The flu. Okay. During the pandemic, from 890, we had 52 cases of the flu because of the masks. So here's a, I mean, wow, we, we get this great information that, hey, flu season, we should wear a mask. 
and we don't saturate our hospitals and we don't burden our economy and we don't burden all the things that happen because of people in hospitals that don't pay, they don't have insurance, they don't have, but we're in a mask, not that difficult, not that difficult a situation. And so that's, that's the irrational and then you have to have someone that's trying to, to be rational about irrational behavior. And that's, that's, I think that's the most pressure that it felt like, I mean, like you said, man, I had to question myself. <laughs> Am I doing right? Am I doing What's the right on? thing? Let me, let me give you the argument that I personally have that sure. I had because I remember vividly that at first when, when everything happened, it was very specific to say masks don't work. The, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed the name, but it was coming from the President of the United States, right? The, the, the medical advisor, I, again, like, Fauci. Yes, he Dr. did say Fauci. Fauci. Yes, it was him said at the very beginning, masks don't work. It's a virus. And, and that, again, personally, I have that as well. Because when people in, in hospitals or they're trying to treat a virus, they don't just wear a mask. They wear other protective equipment. So to me, my common sense, it makes sense. Now, why am I in favor of masks now? Because masks is not for you to not be infected. It's just kind of like when I'm talking... I'm throwing saliva out there, right? It, 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 it just happens. So if that, in my opinion, prevents even that 2%, even 2%, you know what, at a mass scale, that saves millions of lives. Absolutely. So that's why I'm okay with wearing a mask. But again, and this is the argument that I hear a lot, that masks don't protect. And again, you, you are saying that there is evidence that Absolutely. it does. But maybe there's that disconnect in this community as far as, showing that it does at least in, in my mind it would just I, I didn't need that i just common sense to me is like okay it's protecting against saliva that maybe someone left there even if it's three percent doesn't matter at a masculine i understand it helps overall well i'll give you an example uh, we met with the people from cielo vista and uh, they're incredible they have detectors and temperature control and they had all they were really ahead of the game and they were giving they told us a story about 18 executives working for three days in a retreat. They all were social distancing, they all had the mask, and one person had COVID during the three, three days and nobody got COVID. And so those are evidence that, you know, you could be in that situation. Because, you know, people ask me, so going forward, I said, no, no, we're gonna open the economy. We gotta do it with protocols, that's all we gotta do. We can no longer say, see, holding back is, is not the solution. But we didn't know how to do, how to do things, so we would have reset buttons. And like, okay, we don't understand. This is crazy. We don't understand what's going. There's all this misinformation, and you have to slow things down. We now know that a community can survive by doing the right protocols, getting everybody vaccinated, people wearing masks. And if you're if you're not vaccinated, and and then I put my mask on. And if you're both vaccinated, maybe I don't need to put my mask. All of those are, it's not going to stop the economy from opening up. And I'll give you an example of when people tell me, should the bridges open? And, and think about it, the logic tells you you shouldn't, right? I mean, oh my God, you know, they haven't taken care of it. And, but my logic is you open them and that's the way you deal with them. Just like we did with businesses when we opened them and we started wearing masks and social distance and you had to sit different places, we were able to open them and we were able to function. By keeping the bridges closed, what we're doing, we're artificially dealing with a situation as if, and I use the example of a swimming pool. I'm gonna clean half the pool 
Well, you can't do that, right? I mean, you either clean the whole pool or half of it. So as long as we're working on it and they're working on it until we open the, the bridges, and I'd rather do it now because either we do it now or we do it in November or we do it in January, you're going to come through the same situation. What happens when you get people from two communities that come together and there's this symbiotic relationship, then you've got to deal with it. I can quickly, we were doing the logistics. I don't know if you knew, but we were the first. The Coliseum was the first in the country to do that level of uh, almost 5,000. 5,000 vaccines per day. What did I do? Very simple formula. And this is where I think because of being in business and all that, that you make these decisions. I said, okay, we've got one of the best logistic experts ever in the country, Brian Kennedy, who runs Coliseums, who has to deal with the Concierto de Paquita del Barrio and, and control lines and who goes where and everything. And I've got UMC, the best to put that shot in your arm. You put them together, logistics with technology and, and being able to put the shot in the arm, boom, it was magic. I mean, we were, I mean, nobody, everybody was shocked in 20 minutes. You could go in there and get out in 20 minutes. Well, if you counted the 15 for observation, a total of 30 minutes. And then what the city then replicated that. Then the city replicated what we were doing, and they did it at, uh, at the uh, George Perry Center. And then Juarez came and looked at our operations, and that's what they do now. So we were able to create a, a situation where we're doing as much as 5,000 a day by three, four o'clock in the afternoon. And so we, we were very, we're extremely capable. So if we, if Juarez opens, that's how we're gonna help them. We're gonna get people to go to our, I'll open up the Coliseum again. Uh, the commissioners have their areas where they can open up mega centers and we, we could do 20,000 a day. So what you're saying is that you're okay opening because Absolutely. we don't want to prolong what's going to happen eventually exactly. already. Exactly. But you don't think the same can be said about masks? That, you know, let's not wear masks, but eventually the people will get sick. Oh, no, eventually. no, no. We're, we're not, I'm not saying let's open and everybody gets sick. What I'm saying is they're going to come across and we're going to vaccinate them. With a plan of action. That's what you're... Really quick. Okay. Because they, they'll never have the logistics that we have. And, and one of the things that people don't realize, the county drove that whole situation. When we were not getting enough vaccinations and, and, and people were calling me, que mi abuelita, no, 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 no. I, got a hold of, I got a hold of uh, Commissioner Garcia, who happens to have, she lives in El Paso and her family lives in El Paso. And we created a partnership. She started sending me vaccines that we were not gonna get because they were called frontier vaccines which meant only to the outreach areas so we created a situation where we started you know the reason we're where we're at is because of all those outreach programs i mean we we were doing sometimes from four in the morning people were lining up till about five o'clock in the afternoon we were doing four or five thousand a day at each one of the locations and we, we did it the first ones were in fabens tornillo vinton Montana um, Vista, all of those areas we reached out to. And Garcia kept feeding them to me, kept feeding them to me. And I started dispersing. And uh, ESD number two with Chief uh, Sparza did an amazing job. So we were doing all over the place where the city was sort of focusing in a place where it was easy. 
people go, they get in their cars and, you know, we had to go where people would have never. When you were there and you saw una viejita in the back seat and I go, es su pariente, no, es la vecina, me la traje. Then you knew that we were reaching out there. So we refocused and said, let's save the people that are dying. Who's, who was dying 65 and above underlying condition? Who's out there in the county? You know, at one time it was, it was Socorro, Clint that have the highest rate of, of, of infection, not the city. They, they, they go and they go to clinics and they can do a lot of things that the people out there can, can do. So if you look at everything that the city did and what we did, that's why we are where we're at. And, and, and that, that was not easy. The Tornillo project, I mean, all it took was somebody told me that in San Diego they had a mini project. I got a hold of it, started calling them. We started having Zoom meetings. Next thing we know, we replicated and we went maybe four or five times more than they did. And we vaccinated 34,000 uh, maquiladora workers. That was our contribution to getting people in Juarez vaccinated before they opened the bridges. So you've got two, two formulas. One, get vaccinated before you open the bridges because it takes 10 to 12 days to be protected. The second part of the face is they're never going to be able to do what we do. When the bridges open, I can guarantee you we'll be doing 20,000 a day uh, of anybody that comes across. And that makes sense. And the only problem we have, and, and, and one of the things that has been really helpful, I, I, I'm more recognized in Juarez than here. I mean, I can go to Juarez, and when I was doing the, the maquiladoras, I was like their local hero, kind of, ah, and, and I go, this is crazy. These are all people from Juarez. Well, I've been reaching out to them, and I've been on radio programs. I've been on, on, on August cats like this uh, with a Stermando, I can't think of his last name. It's a radio station that he does, a radio program he does at night that's very popular. And here's a guy from El Paso, who's a county judge that has nothing to do with Juarez, telling the people of Juarez and becoming the trusting voice to say, vacúnense antes que regresen a Juarez, necesitan 12 días, tienen que hacer. So it's so, so cool that, you know, you're able to take that river up border, you know, frontera out of the way. Why do you think that is because we have the vaccines, now we asking people to, to get vaccinated? Do you think that's what it is? I'll be quite honest, I, I got my vaccines a long time ago, but at first I was like, there's no rush, I again, I haven't gotten sick, I, I, I'm okay, but the main reason why I got vaccinated, a long time ago by the way, is because I felt so, I don't know if I'm using the right word, but I feel so dumb that there's other countries that are fighting for it, and here it is, just taking on like, you know what, do I believe that there's a chip or something? Nothing's gonna happen to me, so just go take that damn thing. So when you think about comparing and contrasting the cities, I'm like, well, of course, you're the hero because you're offering what they don't have. They don't have, uh-huh. And, and you know, one of the interesting things is uh, when you talk about misinformation, people were sure that people were not getting vaccinated because they were afraid because of this convenience. I can tell you, and I know why that's true. So we're up there at uh, Grace Gardens, and we have ready for 5,200 people show up. And I'm going, wow, hesitancy, right? That's in my mind. I guess they don't want to, they're afraid. And, and I go, well, I did something I wasn't supposed to do, but 
it's a, it's a, it's a nap, but only when a, an emergency happens. And um, we put it out. You know, your uh, vaccinations are free at Grace Garden, and everybody got it on their phone. I was already at Corner Bakery, and I heard the whole, everybody's go off. We went from 200 to almost 3,000. Because people, oh, okay, done in Grace Garden. So this idea that it's all, that we, we, we're not good at discerning. So when we say people are not taking vaccinations because they're hesitant, that's not even half the truth. You know, we talked a little bit earlier, maybe we get back into that, but when people say that people are not going to work because uh, they're getting money and they're lazy, we found out all our studies show that the healthcare system has shifted, the child, health, child care system has shifted, where the mom that took care of the child no longer wants to, the grandmother might have died, unfortunately. Uh, they're trying to readjust. We lost hundreds of, of uh, child care centers. Uh, so we're not prepared. So a lot of the moms need to stay home because they don't have the flexibility at work. But yet we say, well, once you start looking at and being honest with the data, uh, it's very, very different. So that, that, I think that's the point I'm trying to make is that if people just took the time, listen, really made sense of things and not react as quickly, uh, you know, that for see, we're uh, immediate gratification, right? Uh, we're a, a society of immediate gratification. If I could get it right now, it's better than tomorrow. And if I can get the right information, I'm not going to worry about more information. I already have what I want to believe in. And then I utilize that that information, and that's how I look at the world. Yeah. And it's very difficult. So how can someone get out? I know we're now talking about something else. But I, myself, pride, I pride myself on always looking at both sides, checking my empathy, <laughs> not making, uh, not judging right away. But we were talking about the hair salon, how I'm hiring people that I've been trying to hire for a very long time. And I, and I was telling you, because it's, it's so funny how it happened, because telling you that, you know, at first I didn't want to believe that people just don't want to work, but then I've been trying so hard and no one wants to work. And then you, it, it, your response was the same. I'm like, wait a second, I was just schooled with what I think I'm good at. And you're absolutely right. I don't know the full picture. Everything, like you said, makes sense. So that to me was try Try that. To Put in that and say, we take care of your child. <laughs> you're going to get... Every, uh, a, a lot of applicants because right now that's the major situation this idea that they have a lot of money and they're all sitting back and not working a lot of people are very stressed out but they're trying to figure out how to deal with that child that used to have there was a, a system uh, we're now moving into having quality child care centers so we're gonna something good is gonna happen before, cuando era el tío, la abuelita, la prima, they were not getting the right education. And so they now people also realize now that they took care of them for a little while, they got to see that, uh, you know, the child does better, that they need someone who, who really cares for them, that you can teach them the right thing. Uh, so I talked to Dr. Acosta, incredible uh, lady from uh, the YWCA, and now they're focusing, since they lost all of these small uh, child care places and people that were taking care of them at, the, at homes, get tío, la abuelita. They were not good environments for, especially for a Hispanic population. So the good thing that's going to come out of that is there's going to be a creation of very established uh, child care centers that can take care of areas. 
and so people don't have to drive a long distance and that can be reasonable so that you can leave Are the child. Are these community daycares, is that? Well, well, they might, all they want is that they're licensed mm -hmm. and that they're monitored by the state and then monitored by, uh, there's a program that monitors and, and I think there's only like five that actually have achieved that status when we have hundreds and hundreds that don't achieve that quality status. So her concern is, okay, let's do something positive and, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the things. What There's a lot of great things that came out of the pandemic, and we can either, you know, lick our wounds and figure out what happened to us, or we can decide, you know, how can we move forward and, and do things in the in the right way. And one of them, I think, is the understanding that there's uh, there's desert, what they call, you know, places where there, you cannot leave your child. And so what do you do? You try to figure out who will take care of them. But what about the educational component? Uh, that doesn't happen to a middle class, right? Because they have, uh, they take them to child cares, they get education, they take all these classes. Pero el hispano que no tiene dinero lo deja con el tío que there's not going to be an educational process. So from there, Dr. Acosta is saying, you know, we need to create and figure out short distances where there's qualified, licensed child care centers. And that's going to be incredible for our, for our education, for kids being more successful in school, because sometimes they lack, when they get into the first grade, they're already behind, and it's really hard in, in an educational system in the United States. If you fall behind, it's really difficult. To, that's to where we're at right now, I think. My, my, my sister's a teacher, and she's telling me the experience that now she has, that it seems that we did skip one year, even though we were going online. Um, I don't know if maybe other people share that same opinion, but she said, you know what, it, it, we definitely lost a year and we can yeah. see it. And the timing, uh, remember that every aspect of a child's development is very important. So if you're, if you're six years old, your socialization abilities are not, are lacking, right? And that's where you begin to learn how to socialize, you learn how to, you know, do things with the other kids, so you skip that. You're already behind that, and so your socialization process is now behind. Uh, your intellect is also a timely situation. So uh, any, this is something that we've never experienced. Uh, well, unfortunately, the only people that experience what now everybody experienced were the poor people. But now the people that have money experience what it is to skip a year not to have the education, not to have the right nurturing. Uh, they all did because then the parents were not available. They still had to work and they had to figure out different things. So uh, to me, people that are in the middle class or higher should be very sympathetic about what poor people always go through. They're going through it for a year and a half, but the very poor people in our community have always gone through that situation. And that's why you have people that, you know, the, the graduation rates are lower for Hispanics and for, you know, uh, Afro-Americans. And because of that, that gap that happens at an early age, that's when your, your mind is ready to be developed. You skip that, you skip a huge uh, component of, of an ed educational process. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we're talking about it, and I'm glad specifically that there's some, some action plans that, 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 that there's something that um, obviously is going to help with that. Um, I definitely want to talk about Delta variant, right? But before sure. I do, um, I recently had Tommy Gonzalez on. We talked about how impressive it was to be the most infected city to the most vaccinated, right? Um, my question, and it's the same question I asked, why do you think we got to that place of being the most infected city to begin with? 
Well, you know, that's when we should have, have a tremendous respect for our community, that we're unique. We had uh, Juarez struggling, uh, people from here going to Juarez and uh, partying over there because we were trying to shut down here. And you had that interaction between two communities and acting like if it's one community. Uh, we took the bulk of that. You know, there was more people from here spreading it that way than the other way around. And we always felt, yeah, that doesn't happen, right? We're the, uh, I'll tell you how, how bad it was or how they didn't want. The decision to close the borders was primarily Mexico not wanting Americans to go into the United States because our, our situation was much higher. Our various uh, our infectious rate was much, much higher. They're the ones that didn't want us to go over there because they're trying to protect their community. And we're over here thinking, you know, it's, you know, it's, we're closing them. No, no, they, they made a, a, the precedent and the local officials said, I think it's better that, that we do close it because we don't want our people to go over there and then come back and spread the virus back here where we're at. So those dynamics were very obvious. The other thing we found out, do you know that we were, were probably the highest indices of heart, heart disease, diabetes in the country? We uncovered. So, so when people are weak, the virus kills, right? I mean, if someone that, that's healthy, uh, you would probably be protected and you might end up in the hospital, but you might survive. And so we were a very vulnerable community. And, um, and, and that's one of the things uh, that I talked about is the, the bad actors, the bars, the bars flaunting and putting a picture of 72 capacity with 200 people. And, and I said, hey guys, you were the bad actors and now you're blaming me for closing down. You had an opportunity to do it right. When you had the 25% or the 50%, you didn't care. Plus, the first thing that every around the world, the first thing they closed were bars, around the world. The, the what is the first thing they did that was really radical and was close the bars, and they didn't open the bars until the, the very end. And then you know they, they had another variation of, of the virus. But what, what I'm getting at is that you know we have bad actors that that created our decisions or made our. I would tell them, hey. Please do this because I don't want to find myself having to make a decision against you when I see uh, the kinds of things that are going on in the community and the flaunting and all the parties that were out there in the desert. And we went a little crazy. Uh, and then all of a sudden, boom, it just kicked in and we had community spread and it just didn't stop. And that's when, you know, I stepped in. But, but it, it, was, uh, it was our community at its worst. And now we have a community at, our, at its best. And that's what I said earlier. We, we can be the best, better than anybody else. Pero también. Yeah. We can do some things. Que Rolanda, yes. yeah. That's the biggest takeaway. I'm glad we talked about that and it makes perfect sense. I'm also guilty of that because you're absolutely right. When that happened, right, all of us, well, not all of us, but a lot of people with the excuse of, you know, it's only young people happening at the bar. I mean, it, it was funny to see bars and restaurant or restaurant bars, whatever, being at 80 percent 75 but in reality it was more than that and even that wasn't and one of the uniqueness is we have one of the highest uh, multi-generational families of most communities vive la abuelita el tío la hermana and so forth and so when the young man young woman came back home they spread it in in, a, in that situation and uh, that was a lot in one Typically, middle class or whatever, you go home with your mom and your dad, and they're young or whatever, and so you know, it's not a lot of damage, and you take care of it. And 
Pero when you go in and la abuelita tiene 90 y el abuelito tiene 70 y ahí vive el tío y ahí vive it spread fast and it, one of the sad things is that there was communities that had the same population as we do that lost one third of the people that we did. Some lost 300. We lost 2,700 because of all the underlying conditions. So when you have people that are not capable of managing the virus, they're more likely to spread it. Why? You, you go to hospitals and then when they get to the hospital, then there's all the people that deal with them. From the, the persons that take them to the hospital to the, the nurses and the doctors that take them. So it just was, it was uh, catapulting on us. It was just exponentially getting faster and faster on us. But then, you know, we did something about it and we're very proud now to be, you know, we have one of the highest, we're at 73% now of community. Uh, uh, is the, the virus is being, 73% of people are vaccinated right now. Fully vaccinated? Fully vaccinated, 73%. 86% is uh, partially. And then the big numbers are, uh, from 65 and over, we're at about 97% of partial vaccination. And, and 86% of fully vaccinated from 65. So that's what we wanted to do that's a, that's going to be a situation right now we have to take care of very quickly the best thing to do is to be able to target where you think the problem is you know i don't want to defend myself too much but i targeted the healthcare right now we need to target the schools right now something like around the country it's around 65% of people are unvaccinated have the virus that are unvaccinated And now, one of the highest percentages increases in El Paso is under the age of 18 years old. The, remember, you never heard of someone under 18 years old getting the virus, never. Now, the largest percentage of growth of virus is under the age of 18 and below. So what do we need to do? We need to work really fast, go to the schools, see if we can help. We have to mask, I mean, in the schools. We can have an outbreak really quickly in this. And one of the things I've told people, and I said it earlier, we're so close to being up to capacity in the hospitals at this point in time because of non-COVID patients and the new young kids that with a small spike, we'll be back to November, with a small spike. Why? Because in, in November, it took a long time to get from 60% to saturation. But now, within a 10-day period, With a huge spike, we're back to saturated hospitals. And the one was very important, the children's hospital used to be our safety zone. Like we were able to borrow a lot of their space because children didn't get COVID. That's taken. There's no more of that. The 1,800 healthcare workers that came into our community, they're no longer available. It's done all over the country. They're in Louisiana, they're in, in Texas, they're in... So if we wanted right now to to you know, get that uh, the workforce back or the healthcare workers back to El Paso, they don't exist. And they're not going to come back. They're already making $150 all over the country. So this is what I've been saying over and over, the trajectory. You might know where we are now. I have to be paying attention to what's going to happen three weeks from now, a month from now. And if we have a spike, there's going to be a lot of sadness in our community because we'll be right back to square one. That's interesting, and we're already talking about it, and now it's going to be my follow-up question. 
Right now, there's between six to 800 new cases a week of, 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 of COVID, of Delta. I don't know the percentages on that specifically. As of August 31st, what's the current situation? And again, I know you talked a little bit about it. You are looking ahead, but what is going on right now? Do you foresee another shutdown? Do you foresee other things happening? What is it that, again, you're predicting? Our, var our variation is really low of the Delta, which is very surprising. So that means one, it hasn't hit us, or two, the vaccines is really what, you know, the, the solution obviously is that we've been vaccinated. So we're not going those, those numbers as high because we're one of the highest vaccinated communities. If you look around the country, the ones that are now spiking are the least vaccinated communities. So we have so much evidence about the vaccination. I mean, there's there's places where they were they're worse than we are now. We, we were in November, and if you look at their vaccination rates, they're the lowest. So the lowest vaccinated communities are now the ones that are spiking. That's not us. We keep vaccinating. Juarez keeps working on on their end, and we work on our end. I think we can hold off a, a huge spike. And the fact for some reason that our numbers are very low, it's almost uh, crazy to believe that we haven't got the Delta virus like in everybody else. So the numbers are low in the Delta virus. The numbers are high with children, and that's where now we need to shift. What are we gonna do? I mean, we, we have, I think, 6% of uh, between the ages of 12 to 15, only six to 7% of those kids are vaccinated. Imagine, so we're trying to reach community uh, herd immunity or community immunity. And how are we gonna do that? Well, we have the, from 12 to 15 at 6%. When we know that's one of the critical areas that we need to address, and how do we stop it? We stop it with vaccinations. And if they're not vaccinated, doesn't the logic tell you that's where we're gonna have the problem? To me, that's being proactive. Look, look at where, learn from what you've, what's happened, apply it. When we saw 65 years old, what did we do? We shifted, right? Remember, we shifted and we said, we gotta get the 65 year olds. Why are we having the same reaction now about the fact that we're leading into this, the kids between ages of 12 and 15 being the most critical? And our hands are tied, right? Because one, you gotta mask first. You gotta stop the situation. And then two, we gotta get parents to wanna vaccinate their children. And, and now imagine, think of the perfect storm. We're gonna have one of the hardest hit influences that we've ever had in the history. That's the prediction from, from the professionals. You've got people worrying, that's wearing down the vaccination, right? Because uh, you took it in January, maybe you said? Uh, a little later. Later? Okay. No. Well, like myself, I, it was January. So I'm already up for nine months. I need to get the booster. So people supposedly are going to be more hesitant because they said, look, look, I give it a shot. I took two shots. That's all I'm doing. And when it wears down, what happens? Our immunity goes down. The, then they're more likely to get the virus, and then we could go back up again very quickly. And it's all human behavior. When, when uh, you know, the theory is right now that if we did what we used to do, when they said everybody get a smallpox vaccine mm -hmm. or polio and everybody got it, it was eradicated immediately. The prediction is that by May of this past May, we would have eradicated this virus if we didn't have 
Before it was inequality, not everybody got the, the polio shot. Now it's party lines. People die depending on the party line that you're in. Right? If you're in one party, I'm not going to get vaccinated. Chances are you're going to end up in the hospital. And, uh, and, and, and just I want people to think about, I'm a let's say I'm a physician. And I'm dealing with someone who didn't get vaccinated, who's on a ventilator. It's taking a lot of my time. And I hear that somebody just got a heart attack that didn't have, you know, didn't go out there and say, I want a heart attack. Not, not under their, their circumstances, under their control. Think about it, where you put a doctor, the pressure you put a doctor in, that I have to take care of a person that decided they didn't believe in the science, but now you're in my hospital and I'm using that science to cure you. And, and so I think if people just got uh, more sympathetic about the situation and thought through it and understood it, I think we'd be a lot better off. If somebody just took the time to stop a nurse and say, hey, tell me what happened to you during that time. And then they'd be like me, right? They'd be like, wow, that's difficult. Maybe I'm gonna think different. So take your time, go ask someone. Go ask someone that went through a crisis that you weren't aware of. Talk to someone who lost four people in their, in their family. Have discussions with them. And then see how your, your mind changes and you start thinking, I want to protect the community. I don't want that to happen to my, to my family. I don't want that to ever happen to someone that I love. A lot of people didn't get touched by it. A lot of people didn't know any, you know, didn't get to see it, didn't get to feel it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I know it's hard to predict right now, but what will be that perfect storm? How many cases, I don't know if we can uh, put numbers on it, for us to think about another shutdown? I don't think we'll shut down. To, to be honest with you, I think we've learned that um, that the shutdown is not the answer. The answer is collective uh, consciousness. Uh, when they when people tell me, well, let's give incentives and let's give, I mean, my goodness, uh, I, I know that this isn't the psychology part of my brain working, but when I was in manufacturing, the worst thing you could do is a campaign. If you wanted high quality you integrated quality into your employees. If you wanted safety, you integrated safety into their employees. But when you tell them, if you're safe, I'm gonna give you $100, and if you give quality, it starts and it finishes. So we're gonna incentivize, right? Everybody, oh, let's incentivize. Let's have, you know, give more money and loterias and all that. And then what happens? When we get to the booster, no, pues si no me das dinero. Now we're back to square one. But if I create a collective consciousness that you as a person are sensitive that six, you know, the 2,777 people died. I don't need a campaign. I don't need to tell anybody. It becomes part of the way we think and the way we care about people. And so that's what I believe is that when you create a collective consciousness of people not wanting this to happen again, you don't need an incentive. You already have them. You want an incentive? Talk to someone who lost three or four people. I know one family lost six. Three brothers, an aunt, a grandmother. I mean, do you think they need an incentive to, to, to do that? So to, to me, because uh, I've been asked about incentives, and I said, you know, I hate, because I don't think people are going to understand and I want to get criticized, but I can tell you that, um, for example, uh, you have a, you said you had a daughter, right? And she's making A's right? It's been proven that you don't give her money for those A's, right? Oh, no. But it's been proven 
that if tomorrow you tell your daughter, you know what, for every A you make, I'm going to give you $100, her grades are going to go down. You know why? Why? Because that's not the reason she was making the A's. So you took away the real motivation away from her. It could have been to please the dad. And you give her the money, she doesn't know how to get motivated with money, and then she, her grades will go down. And it's a proven fact that if you motivate differently than what motivates you, you're going to lose the motivation, and then you're going to do things different. I don't want to start giving money to people. Uh, I learned my lesson, uh, the maquiladora, when I told you we have the lowest turnover. There were maquiladoras that had the desks in the sidewalk so that they didn't have to come in to, to, to register to get into their company. You know how long that person lasted? Probably an hour. They'd say, you know what, I don't like it here. I'm going to go to the next maquiladora. But the ones like us, hey, you come in, you apply, and we would say, you know, we, we have more people, whatever, but they made an effort to work with us, and they stayed with us. When you make it too easy for people to do something, it's very unlikely that you're, you're going to change their behavior. So we should be a society that does not cater to our deficiencies, to, our, to one of the immediate gratification. I give you $100 and you get a vaccination. I'm going to have to do that for the rest of my life. For everything that happens, they're going to want money for, for that. Yeah. And if you don't offer it, now you're the bad person. Yeah. Now you're, uh, there's so many. And Las Cruces, yeah. they give $100. And right now, as you're talking, everything makes sense. I'm like, oh my God, all this you got from your experience working at, as uh, HR, as some, uh, the La Maquiladoras and all that. And I'm like... I'm so glad he has all that experience because that makes perfect sense, well, right? And I try to apply it, but without pushing it or shoving it down somebody's throat, like, I know this. Uh, well, you one, should. Well, no. <laughs> Why not? Well, one time this guy uh, asked me, he says, hey, uh, my first interview, someone said, hey, uh, you know, how do you approach business or jobs or anything? I said, you know what? I approach like if I don't know anything. Because if I start saying, ah, pues yo hice esto, and one time I did that, then how am I going to do what's right at that moment? Because things change, they're very dynamic. And I said, so I started thinking, I don't know anything. So I, I, I look at the paper the next day, and he puts, his, the title was, Samaniego doesn't know anything. <laughs> so I go, damn. <laughs> and, and so, you know, but I do start like that. I start with, you know, I don't know a lot. And then that forces me to learn and understand And, and I learned that because I had to, to run a company that did harnesses for automobiles, and I knew nothing about it, nothing. And, uh, and if I thought I did, I'd be in trouble. So what would I do? I always had a team around me trying to figure things out. And so I've always, you know, I depend a lot on people helping me understand a situation. I depend on genders that look at the world different. For example, a woman looks at things very different than I do, so I kind of respect that view more than mine. And I go, wow, you look at it, can you tell me how you look at this? And then let me see how I look at this. So to, to me, it's, it's the idea of not thinking that you know everything and that there's so much to learn. Even though I have a background, I have a foundation, but I don't rely on that as much as I rely on, on curiosity trying to figure things out, trying to be creative, trying to look at things different, because things are not static, everything changes. 
I like that a lot. One of my main focuses in with this podcast is getting into the mindset of how can we get more people to think that way. I know for the purpose of of who you are, the the figure that you are here with COVID and all your decisions, I wanted to focus a little more on that. But it, I, it is my my opinion that we need a lot of of emotional intelligence in El Paso. It sounds like you were raised from from a family that was able to teach you those values that were able to teach you on on or, or at least see examples on helping others, community and stuff like that. But you do realize that the majority of people don't share that, and it's not their fault. It is that it's limited. It's how they grew up. So one of the things that I'm trying very little right but it's offering someone a different perspective that they were never offered to begin with mm -hmm. so from a community standpoint is there anything i know you're big on, on again because of your background and emotional intelligence of, of helping the community but is there anything that um in the works for for something around helping with uh, dealing with depression right now with with a lot of different things that um, COVID has brought up to the to the table here? Well, you know, I did a lot of uh, podcasts on mental health and what might happen and how you should approach it. And one of the things that I talked about is that we should always take an opportunity of it. Anything that changes in our life, it heightens our awareness. We think different. And then we take advantage of that that thinking because it doesn't happen. For example, why do people have to wait for someone to die for you to change or, or change the way you look at the world because we need something very dramatic that happens in our life. So if you take advantage, for example, if you look at what really happened during the pandemic and really take advantage of the changes that happened inside of you and, and then don't think that you're going to learn just by the fact that it happened. People believe, and I use the example, you could sit next to a pilot and do 2,000 flights and you sit there, oh, I think I get it. I think until you get on that on that seat and you fly that plane you're going to start learning you're not going to learn from being on the and when people say i learned a lot and i tell them, what did you learn was a lot <laughs> like, but they can't tell me what they learned why because they didn't analyze what happened and they didn't make a plan to say these were my new feelings what am i going to do with that this is the way i look at the world how am i going to how am i going to refocus to look at it differently how am i what am i going to do to make a change it doesn't happen by itself. It has to be very conscientious. You have to analyze the changes. Uh, one of the things that, that we know is going to happen is we're going to have a tremendous amount of suicides. Our mental health is going to be one of the biggest challenges, and it's called delayed treatment. We, have, we do understand it physically, right? No me cuide el diabetes, no me cuide. But what about all the time that people that have mental health challenges were doing exactly what you're not supposed to do? When you have a mental health challenge, what do you tell people? Go to church, go to communities, go to your friends, hang out, you know, don't stay indoors. We told them exactly the opposite, stay indoors. You know, shelter, you know, quarantine. Uh, we withdrew, we started doing Zooms. That was probably the worst thing for anybody having any kind of uh, experiences with mental health. That was probably 10 times worse because of that. But one of the things that I said, and it's not over yet, so I, don't, I hope nobody says, well, it's too late. Always think about, always keep the end in mind. How are you going to feel that you had all these opportunities and you didn't take advantage of them? One of the hardest things that happens to us in mental health is having an opportunity and not capitalizing on it. There's something that happens inside of us that you go, damn, 
I have this and I didn't do it. So from the very beginning, I did a lot with the chambers, with the Hispanic chamber, the greater chambers. I, I had discussions about make sure that you're productive during the situation so that when it's over, you can look back and say, I took advantage of the situation. Because if you didn't, it's going to be hard on your psyche to say, man. So on a personal level, I said, man, I painted the inside of my house. I painted the outside of my house. I started reading different books. I started doing things that I don't normally do so that when I look back, I know that it wasn't a waste of time that when I was having to be at home, was the only time I could, I, I don't have time for a, to be walking around with a painter and telling him what to paint, but since I was doing Zoom, I would sneak out, please, I can't do this and do that, and then I come back in, painted the outside, remodeled the house, did everything I could, because I wanted something to be very productive. And if anybody wants to deal with mental health, the hardest thing to that you can combat, that it's very proven, it's your level of productivity. If you're productive, if you're feeling good about yourself, if you're feeling like you're moving, your mind is moving in the right direction, it can fight off the little depression, the melancholy, the things that come in. But if you start feeling, I'm not productive, I'm not doing what I need to do, the COVID weight <laughs> that, that most people got, I got COVID, I lost weight, but that was another thing. I said, you know, what an opportunity to really focus on exercising and focus on, on looking better. And how, so I, I started, you know, being my own psychologist, I guess is the best way I can put it, and say, what would I tell someone that was going through what I was going through? I said, be productive. Do the things you, you wouldn't be able to do. I'm going to have heightened awareness, and I'm going to take, take advantage of that heightened awareness. Heightened awareness just means that for some reason your mind's more open to it. For example, when you start a new job, you have heightened awareness. And I tell people, journal. Capture everything when your mind is like, it's a new job, you're new friends, you know, you're trying to journal, journal, and then come back to it to remind you what, what you saw and what you committed to that you start forgetting later on. And so to me, the pandemic is a great opportunity to look at the world differently, but not to assume that because you looked at it differently, that therefore something's gonna change in your mind. It doesn't happen like that. It changes by making a very conscientious decision that you're gonna do different things because of the new perceptions that you have about the world. And that you need to change as well, yeah. right? You need to put yourself out there knowing that you are doing something wrong or something, it's not the results of whatever you're doing. If it's a negative one, then something must change. I just find it so hard for people, including myself, to get to that point to begin with, right? I think that, and of course, with, with all your experience, I'm sure you agree with that, and definitely we can spend hours talking about this. I'm very just, passionate about very this. Very quickly, one, one theme, and that is that you said something very important. Recognize that something happened that should have made you change. How can someone recognize that if their parents, their immediate surroundings, if no one calls that out how can someone identify that well we're in a world that a historical uh, unprecedented how many times have you heard unprecedented a thousand hundred i mean everybody says this is unprecedented yeah. it has never happened if that is in fact the case then something happened inside of us something happened inside of us and so you first have to recognize it because things changed you changed and then you have to say well what happened 
how did I change? What did I find out about myself that I didn't know? And, and start working with that. I, I mean, I would say that the best thing anybody could do right now is try to find mentors. You know, find people that, that are willing to, uh, and, and, and I have, a, there's this great book called The Heart of Mentoring. And you know, I said, if I'm gonna mentor you, you shouldn't accept me if I'm not being mentored. And I'm not going to accept you mentoring if you're not mentoring someone else. Ooh. See, that dynamic, that dynamic, see, when I'm mentoring you and I'm not being mentored, then I'm, I'm not going to be that. I'm going to be like, yeah, you should and you should do that. But if somebody's mentoring me, then it, I'm thinking, wow, that's not easy to say. Let me, how can I help you? But you better mentor someone else. And if we could create that mentoring right now is one of the most important things that we could do. There's not enough therapists. There's not enough psychologists, but there's enough people going through difficult situations for you to be able to sit down and say, you know, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm feeling right now. You know, when I, there's a person in my life right now that, that, that I could say, and it happened this morning, to say, you know, I started talking about these things and that person was listening to me. And they didn't have to say anything. Just the fact that they understood and listened to me was like, wow. They didn't tell me. No, but no debes de sentirte así. They just listen to me. And so that's all we need right now is people to begin to listen. People to begin to understand that we're going to heal and that we have a lot, a lot of work to do to make sure we come out of it properly. Those people that, in my case, I was fortunate that I knew that I needed to be productive and I'm not going to be regretful of something that happened because... Uh, that and I know we're going to talk about it but the healing garden I've been working on that for two years now and to see it come to fruition I mean how am I going to feel bad about that, that there was a pandemic when during the pandemic I was able to do something for the community that's going to be there forever and one of the most beautiful you know reasonably financed uh, it was all by donations of having a healing garden it's going to be available so I can look back and say, wow, that's something that I contributed to the community. It doesn't have to be that big, but anything that you do, we know there's certain things that we know that people say it and then don't do it. One of them is it's really hard to be depressed and have mental challenges when you're helping someone else. I, I you know, it's like, like you tell people, Smile and feel feel bad. You can't do it. You can't smile. Not wow. smile and not try to feel bad inside. <laughs> you can't do it. So when you're helping, there's something that's an incredible energy that when you help someone, you just can't feel bad about your situation. But as soon as you start turning it inward and you're only thinking about yourself, oh, that's a horrible place to be because you'll never find a way out. The labyrinth of your soul is this way, not this way. So when you start going inward, you'll never find a, an answer. You'll never find a solution. It, it gets worse and worse. But as soon as I say, you know, I'm going to help you. Somebody, look, look at even the gesture. When I, when I go, oh, I'm depressed or I want to help you. Look at the difference of, of the body language. And, and you begin to feel better. And you feel better about helping others and then when helping others so there's other things that people might or might not believe but it comes back to you but even psychologically it's hard for me to feel bad about myself if I'm helping you that's yeah. all there is to it but in order to, to you to help someone else you have to be okay with you absolutely 
Uh, I have always said that, uh, at, at least this is my opinion, that progress equals happiness. Um, as long as you're making progress, as small as it may be, that is happiness. And once you find yourself in, in, in a happy place, in a pure happy place, that's when you can begin to help others. Um, I had this coworker, which I bring a lot, that he used to say, you know what, this book about getting rich or, or having a better emotional intelligence, mental health, you know what, this is just BS. You think that if someone really wants to help out, they're going to put it on the books and it, they're going to write a book uh, uh, on it. And again, at that time on my life, I was like, well, okay, that, that makes sense, right? <laughs> but then later on, once I found happiness, I can tell you that the one thing that I brag about the, the, the one that I have several accomplishments I, I have I've done okay with my life but the one thing that I brag a lot uh, with people is I'm happy I'm a hundred percent a happy person and that is something that that's to me that's the goal in life once you reach that you're good and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm doing this because once you get there I think it is my opinion that you do want to share that because it feels so Absolutely. good that you you know you want to share it and, and sometimes it's difficult. I was telling you before, my, my language, my primary language is Spanish. So having to put myself out there, doing it in English, I know I mispronounce a lot of things that I say that I can't translate fast enough. I'm like, but guess what? I know someone at least that is going to hear and be like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And I'm like, that's, yeah. that's good enough, right? Well, you become a role model uh-huh. of, of being able to, to deal with a situation. And, but it's, it's what I, and I want to convey that because mental health is very important to me that it's the small things. Uh, I'll give you an example. Tomorrow, get up and don't make your bed. Okay? Get up and make your bed. What? There's a book that says make your bed. <laughs> like when you get up, make your bed. As simple, and, and obviously it's not as simple as that, but it conveys that if you're always moving to a better place, for example, not making your bed is not going to make you feel good, right? But making your bed, you go, wow, I accomplished something. I've already, first step that I took, I've accomplished something. And then you move forward. And so you look for these opportunities. And, and the other one, obviously, that, uh, that I want people to understand, that mental health issues creep in when you're never in the present. They don't Say that in. again, I'm sorry. When, when you're in the present, it's difficult for you to be thinking of bad things. Because I'm, I'm here with you, right? But if I'm here thinking of what happened before or what's going to happen afterwards, that's when the opportunity for things to become negative. But in the presence, I'm here in the present. And what people, and, I, and I've always told people, I said, when you're taking a shower, take a shower. Feel the water, sense the water. Don't be, talking, don't be in your shower thinking about the office. And when you're at the office thinking about, you know, our mind is always lagging all the time, lagging behind us because we're always one step ahead. If you're driving, feel the steering wheel. Look at the outside. No, we're driving. We're not even sensing. So it's really hard for our body to be coordinated when it's not feeling what you're doing at the time. If I'm driving, but I'm not sensing that I'm driving, where's my mind? It's not connected to where I'm at. And so the first step to me is when you take a shower, do everything possible to be in the shower. No thinking of what's going to happen later and what's going to be and all your problems and all your issues simply feel the water feel the warmth feel that you're in the shower it's it's like a magical thing because your mind cannot become stressed with what's happening in the present it becomes stressed with what happened what you're thinking before and what you think is going to happen later on that's how we get stressed so when people tell me 
are you stressed? And you know, <laughs> because I'm, right now, how could I be stressed? I don't even, am I going to, now if I'm worried about what's going to happen, the stress happens, right? But if as long as I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with the present and feeling that I'm in that moment, it's extremely powerful. So there's, it's not extreme things that you have to do or psychoanalysis and it's just a matter of the small things. And you said, uh, the only thing that you said is when you get there, well, no, happiness, you never get there. Uh, happiness is a journey that's forever, that you're seeking. Journey. Seeking happiness is, is good mental health. Thinking that you're going to achieve it is not good mental health because you'll, you'll never achieve it. it. Something else is going to go wrong. But to get up every day and say, I have an opportunity to be happy today. Not I'm going to be happy, to be happy. That it's out there. I just have to wait for it. Uh, I use that strategy. For example, I play golf. And, and I'm not really good at it, but you know what I do? Man, I'm going to get a birdie. I don't know. I don't care about the sevens and nines. I'm looking for a birdie. Somewhere in the 18 holes, I'm going to get a birdie. And that, that makes me happy. But if I was trying, oh, I got a seven, I should have an eight, I wouldn't be happy. So, but looking forward and having expectations that happiness is possible. When I worked with very severe depressed people, I would tell them, I want you to hold on to a happy moment because right now you don't think that's possible. That's why you're feeling like you're feeling because you've made up your mind that you'll never ever get out of this depression. You're, you think this is the way your life is going to be, that it's going to be sad, it's going to be melancholy, it's going to be. So I would get them to think of some happy place and that allowed them to hold on to the idea that there is happiness. So if I get up and say today somehow I'm going to get to that happy, happy moment in my life, of searching, I'm expecting something good to happen. So, like I said, don't. It's it's a matter of small things, and, and and I speak with all my heart. I know there's people out there that are dealing with mental health. I don't want to simplify it that it's easy, and I know the pain, but I know that every step you take towards feeling better is going to be important. Every time you reach out to help someone, you're going to feel better. Every time you're productive, you're going to feel better. So. You've got to search for that that opportunity. There is that light out there, and, and you can reach it. And, you, and I don't want anybody to ever believe the reason people commit suicide the most, the majority of the times is because they feel they're never going to get out of that feeling. And to, to think that, can you imagine for one moment to think that this is how I'm going to feel for the rest of my life? Wouldn't you not want, I probably don't want to live if I have to deal with that. But that's not right. That's what you're thinking at that moment. That's what you're feeling at that moment. But just remember, you didn't. You had happy feelings one time in your life. That means they could come back again. And always have that expectation. Always have that expectation that things are going to get better for you. One way or the other. You could call it faith. You could call it optimism. But as long as you believe that things are not going to be like they are at that moment, then it doesn't lead you to that uh, desperate situation that you feel you have to take your life. Our suicide rates have increased tremendously. We're expecting them to increase more. Uh, for me as a mental health, I had to leave mental health. Financially, it was not good for me because I had a big family. Um, and I've always felt bad about that. So every opportunity that I get to help people to, to, to be better and not to, get, not to end up in that place where they feel that they, it's better not to live than to live, you're confused. It's not true because it will be better. It, it is going to get better for you. And, and 
always talk to people. Whenever you feel like you're not feeling good about your situation, just talk to people. Call me. I, my, my kids make fun of me because during my campaign, I have my, my cell number on all my, my material. They go, are you kidding, Dad? They go, Everybody's going to call you. They go, oh, that's great. <laughs> like, let them call me. I know it's hard, and, and my box gets full and everything, but uh, I, always, I always have the opportunity to, to be able to share and help someone just feel better. And um, just, like I said, mentor. Right now, if, if I could put a program that would address mental health, would be peer counseling and mentoring. Because we're not going to have the professionals out there. We're not, we're, it's, it's too overwhelming right now. The best thing you could do, search for someone that you think is a little bit more stable than you are, and that's all you need. And when people tell me, what can I offer? Oh, my goodness. Some girl says, I'm only, I'm only 16. How can I mentor? I said, well, there's a 13-year-old that has not, hasn't reached 16. Teach her how to get to 16 better than you did, period. So here we are. There, I'm so glad we talked about this. You have no idea. Hopefully, you can accept an invite for another occasion. We just talk about that. Nothing about government, city, uh, DMR. Nothing about that. Just focus on this. It's, it's one of the things that, especially when you see the the problems that other people have that you're like in your mind that's not a problem let me tell you how to fix it you feel this the, the, this emotion of wanting to help them because you know that's not a big deal and but of course there's many layers behind that but again we hopefully you can uh, accept a, an, an invite so we can talk about that i would love that just about that i'll talk about uh, i studied under psychoanalysis, rational motor psychotherapy, reality therapy, gestalt therapy, and um, it, it all comes down to just wanting to help someone. That's all it takes. You know, God didn't put us here to, to, to be different. He put us here to make a difference. And, and if you always look for that, you know, like, what, what skills do I have? Why, why, why am I here? I mean, it's not just for ourselves. It's something that, that we all have abilities and talents that, that we need to use them. And when we don't use them, I think that's when we start feeling sad because we have certain things that we're sitting on uh, instead of nurturing them and, and growing them. So we all have them. Whether you're, a, you're good at, at handiwork and you teach someone to do that, it doesn't matter. Just uh, we have to become a community of, of helping and, and helping others. And, what I'd like the next time, if uh, we could talk about the healing garden and the and the basis for that. It's up to you. That was going to be my last subject. I know you're very passionate around that. I, I want to talk a little bit about the event because in your two years, a little bit more than two years, as a county judge, you have had so many things going on. And I know this is one of them. I don't know if you if you could spend a little bit uh, of time talking about, um, first of all, the event, what happened, what were some of your feelings, and also now the healing garden, where we're at right now as a community. Well, I walked in... Uh, with a bishop, uh, we walked into the emergency room and uh, it was horrible. And as I'm, and I always tell, and I know it's hard. I wanted, I, I like this about me kind of stuff because when I walked up, uh, there's a mural of my great grandfather at the hospital. Uh, he was the first um, trained medical doctor here in, uh, in El Paso. He studied in Paris, and at the time of Louis Pasteur, he was a, a great uh, research. Uh, uh, scientist in tuberculosis and some other areas and um, I always looked at him and I always thought man that me el vato de la Jeff 
there's some something's wrong with this picture and I could never connect and I always felt less you know like wow you know man I'm sure letting this guy down I mean I'm a county judge but this guy was amazing and uh, so I'm walking in and I connect with him and for the first time I I make that connection that uh, I'm part of a legacy and, and, and sort of there was something that said I gotta I, I can do this I'm not gonna have doubts I'm not gonna I, I can help the community and when I started talking to the families and everything, I knew there had to be something tangible that would come out of this as the here. This is what happened. But if uh, if we didn't have that, what would we have? So there wouldn't be anything tangible to look at and, and remind us. And especially something that didn't come from public funds. It was donations from a lot of my friends like J.R., Joey Rosales, and, uh, you know, David McIntyre. You know, they give a lot of money to help me do it the way I want to do it with my vision. I didn't have to be worried about, no, we got to do it this way in a committee. And committees are really terrible. They say that, uh, you know, the camel was probably made with a committee, right? Because it came out all, it, it came out with different forms and shapes. And, and so I didn't want that. And I was able to reach that. And the idea was, how can we do something that really is spectacular? I wanted it to be circular like a hug. I wanted it to feel like a hug when you walked in. I wanted it to be something that was not only in a, 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 a tribute to the families, but that because of what happened, then we could help the rest of the community. And so as much as they're the, 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 the main, the centerpiece of the garden, and the, they all have, there's a plaque there, it's really to help people heal right now whatever it is and, and and you'll find it if you go there and you see the water features and and you see the flowers and the smell of the flowers it's a really nice place to begin to heal and then begin to be united and begin to work towards uh, helping other communities and i've always had it in my heart that el paso would be the only community that would be capable of creating a movement towards healing and unity why because i've seen it I've seen what we've done to 250,000 refugees. I know how we've clothed them, feed them, dignified them, and help them move forward. And so this garden is like a place that you want to go to to help yourself, but with the idea that when you leave there, you're going to help others. I have a quote there that I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but in essence it says, when you come here and you leave, be the light for others. You know, don't don't just come here and try to heal yourself, but try to feel good about yourself at whatever level you reach, whether it's a little bit or a lot, go out and do the same for someone else. Try to get someone else to feel like you're feeling at that moment. I feel a little bit better. Well, make someone feel a little bit better. Man, I feel really great. Well, so go make someone feel really great. Whatever it is that you're feeling and you're moving towards that healing process, go 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 share it with someone else. And that was the idea of the garden. Uh, in 700 years ago, there were healing gardens that dealt with tragedies. And when you had a tragedy, you had a healing garden that you would go to to start the healing process. I didn't know anything about that. But you know, when, when you're at a level of passion and compassion, you might f do something that, that relates to something 700 years ago. I had no clue that there was healing gardens. I don't know why we call it a healing garden. I just thought it was a great place to heal. It was a healing garden. It wasn't a memorial. I really was like, oh, I, don't, I don't want a memorial where you go and you see some memorial. And I don't want to emphasize where, but 
I don't want to go there. So this is a bit more. I want to go there where it's interactive. I saw the families at that at that day, sitting around on a bench, uh, with a grandmother and someone that had was talking about seeing someone that was being shot while they were on the ground, sitting there at the bench having these discussions. And I said, wow, it is a place that you come and you try to heal. People were hugging and, you know, they felt something about that place. And so when I said about me, if not me, then who? And if not now, when? That's the same challenge that I'm saying to the El Paso community. If not us, who? Tell me. Which community in the United States is capable of, of that us? When should we do it? Now. Because if not now, when are we going to do it? If this is the moment of all moments to be able to do that. So my next phase is, in, is, is I go for re-election and I won my next four years. A lot of the focus is transformational, whether it's economic development and we become like a San Antonio or, or, or if it's a movement towards healing, whatever it is, we can do it transformational. We're not a community that does things, once again, the campaign idea. Here's money, do it. No. Let's have transformational and let's move forward in a transformational manner. And then I think it's going to be here. I really believe that with all my heart, that El Paso can be that community. And so when you go to the Healing Garden, give me your feedback. Facebook, whatever, how do you feel? Am, am I, is my vision appropriate to believe that that's a place to start at? When I hear people tell me there's a, a good friend of mine that has a son who did not get vaccinated, who's right now on a, on a ventilator, who yesterday lost his pulse, and today they recovered, I mean, they recovered it quickly, but it's really sad. And I told the mom, go to the healing garden. She goes, man, I hadn't thought of that. So it's a place that you can go to reflect and meditate because it's got a lot to it. There's 23 people that have been honored there. The families planted their own trees. There's 23 trees that have been planted there. There's flowers that were planted there by them. The Tigua uh, community or the Tigua Indians did the, the, the uh, sanctified the, 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 the land. The, the bishop has been there. Father Banuelas has been there blessing it. So I believe it's a special place that people can start from there because we need a starting point and sometimes we need something physical or visual. As Hispanics, we're very ceremonial and we need a ceremony, we need a place, we need a place to be. I mean, when we go visit our, our parents at, at the cemetery, uh, it doesn't matter what everything they tell us, they're in heaven, no, 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 she, <laughs> she's right here because we need something ceremonial, visual to see that. So I'm hoping this is like a, a place that that people go to that are feeling a little sad. And maybe they'll look around and maybe somebody is sadder than you are and you go put your, your hand around them. And to me, if I, if I ever hear that, that it's a place like that, then I've accomplished it. If I hear it's a memorial, I miss the mark. But I don't think it's going to be that. I think it's too beautiful to... To, to be a memorial more than it is a healing garden. Um, that talks a lot about you not wanting to just build the memorial in memory. You wanted to also make other people healed, of course, to impact more people. And and again, it, it's just funny when I have conversations like this, how everything you do makes sense 
since our beginning of our conversation, how you started with, with the jobs that you took on, the careers, it all makes sense to the things that you have accomplished. I'm like, oh, we can spend hours more talking yeah, I don't about think that everything. Garden would have happened. So, yeah. Uh, no, thank you. Thank no, you I, 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 I feel so thankful and inspired after this conversation. Let me ask you my last question, I promise. But this is something I ask every single guest. What is one thing you love about El Paso? And what is one thing that you will maybe change or even improve about our city? I think the most important thing, and everybody talks about it, whether we had healthcare workers from out of town, whether we had first responders from out of town, when I bring companies in uh, to see if they're going to be in El Paso, you know what they tell me? It's the people. That's what I love about El Paso, that we are a community that we still ask, where'd you go to high school? You know? And you know why we say that? Because that's how we connect. We're trying to find connections. Other communities don't try to find connections. But when I say, ¿Dónde fuiste a la puya? mi hermano. And then you start. Imagine me with the youngest of nine all went to Jefferson so I can connect with all the different generations. That's what I love a lot. What I want to change is that we create that synergism and share it to the rest of the world. Because... We, it's almost like in the Bible where you hide your lamp, right? So, you know, I think we're a community that has so much more to go beyond. And sometimes we're petty. And a lot of times we're petty about a lot of different things. And if we can overcome that pettiness and the, the few that, that make us look like we're fighting and everything's bad and everything's wrong, it's like, it's like it taints us. And, and I just wish we had a community that was capable of keeping moving forward and not stopping because somebody says, es que esto, y ahí va todo el mundo porque esto. The greater community here, especially the older community, I think the, the, from the 55 and up, are as a community that could teach a lot to our children. Uh, in my case, my children knew my friend's children. And now that doesn't happen. You have friends, but you don't know their children. And so there's so many things that, that we used to do that were right. But all my kids know all my, my, my friends' kids. And they can communicate with each other. And, and, and that's sort of missing in our, in our community. So I think we need to keep our community, take that uniqueness that we have, and nurture it, and make sure that we don't lose it. I don't want to be Detroit. I don't want to be Chicago or, you know, stay in any place like that. I want to be El Paso. But it doesn't mean that as we get bigger, because we're going to get bigger, we're going to have some amazing things happen in El Paso. Economic development is going to boom like you can't even imagine. We were the strongest economy of all of Texas during the pandemic, the strongest. We had the highest sales taxes of all of Texas. And, and historically, we've never had this high. You do that, before it was Mexico made us be there. Mexico didn't hurt us. So people say, so you wouldn't know, other than the downtown, the lack of people from Mexico didn't hurt us. They think I'm being negative, no. But when they come in, boom, they're gonna catapult us. So for the first time, it's not gonna be survival that makes us, it's going to be taking us to the next level. And it's very exciting what El Paso has to offer. But I want this, this kind of community unity to stay with us as we get bigger. And, and, and like I said, the people to me are just fascinating. Wow, 
very well said. So first time I hear that perspective on that, and I was like, oh. well, all this conversation, I just want to once again thank you, and, and I want to thank everyone who watched the episode, the two and <laughs> the two hours that we spent. I'm sure hopefully someone will find value out of that of watching um, and, and hearing this conversation. So thank you again. I'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Adios. Thank you.